from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW. This is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm Casey Callahan, and today I'm joined by Jack Saletta. Jack began at Lawndale Christian Legal Center as a legal intern in 2019 and has returned as an Equal Justice Works Fellow, sponsored by Kirkland and Ellis and Aon. Jack focused much of his studies in law school on the failings and inequities within the criminal justice system and is committed to serving clients and communities who have been harmed by it. He is passionate about restorative justice and Londell Christian Legal Center's vision for a holistic legal system that seeks to empower and heal communities instead of abuse and neglect them. Jack received his BA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his JD from Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Thanks so much for joining me, Jack. Thank you, Casey. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So first, uh, I'd love to start with some background about the restorative justice court. So what is the restorative justice court? So it's a court that's pretty much unique to Chicago. It's a sanctioned diversion court uh, for young people who have been accused of felonies. Um, So in order to be eligible for the restorative justice court, Um, You have to be from the community in which the court uh, is located. You have to be under 26 years of age. Um, You have to be uh, charged with some sort of crime, which currently has to be a crime that's not violent. Um, And uh, you have to agree to take accountability for your actions. Um, But it's that's kind of where. The fact that it's a diversion court is kind of where the similarities between the criminal system and what we do at the RJCC um, stop because it's completely different. It um, utilizes restorative justice instead of, uh, you know, our criminal system. So um, just for folks who don't know, restorative justice is a very old and studied practice rooted in a lot of indigenous traditions. Um, and it really turns our failed criminal system on its head. Um, it's an alternative form of accountability that seeks to repair harm by connecting people instead of disconnecting people through incarceration. It treats um, you know, harm that someone does not as a violation of a law or a statute, but as a violation against a person, against a community, and against yourself. Uh, and in the process of creating a justice or accountability, it centers whoever the victim's needs are in that process, which in our current system, when someone violates a law, they don't violate that person. And every criminal case that you'll see is titled people versus whoever or state versus, you know, whoever. Um, and in that way, the state takes the victim out of the process entirely. And that's by design. The victim rarely gets an opportunity to speak. Um, unless it's at a sentencing hearing after the judgment has been rendered. 
And that's true of the defendant or the person who has caused harm as well. They don't get to tell their story. They don't get to, you don't get to hear the nuances that led up to that moment that brought them in contact with the criminal system. Um, the judge at the restorative justice court, Judge Pat Spratt in Wandale, talks about that with every new client that we have, that the biggest difference between what we do and what the criminal system does is they are focused on a moment in time, whatever moment it was that brought you in contact with the criminal system, where we focus on the whole of the person. We want to know the, that person's background, what led to that moment, everything about that moment itself, and what that person's goals and hopes are for the future, and how we can help support them to get to those goals so they don't end up continuing to cycle through our criminal system. Um, so yeah, that's basically what the court does in a nutshell. So you mentioned diversion. Uh, could you talk a little bit about at what point the restorative justice court comes in, uh, in the process of someone, um, uh, being accused of a crime or committing a crime at what point would they participate, uh, in the restorative justice court and ultimately be diverted? What does that diversion process look like? Yeah. And, um, so this is a good question, especially for uh, law student arguments, because there's one nuance of the court that's really, I think, important and impactful for the court's success. Um, so when someone comes into the court, there's two different streams of when they come in. Either they come in through uh, at the preliminary hearing stage, which is just, you know, when courts find out whether you have probable cause to move the case forward to the an actual criminal courtroom. Um People can waive their right to a preliminary hearing uh, if they qualify and be diverted to the court from there. Or uh, attorneys, once a court, once a client is actually in a uh, criminal courtroom, can advocate with the state's attorney in that courtroom um, as to why this young person should deserve the opportunity to participate in the restorative justice community court. And then the judge is able to transfer them from a criminal courtroom to the R court here in the RJCC. Um, the nuance that I wanted to highlight about why this court is really impactful is with a lot of diversion courts, like if you hear about people going to, you know, drug court or mental health court, um, to get to that court, you, the client has to plead guilty beforehand. And then they're basically on probation with this guilty verdict hanging over their head. So if they mess it up and what for whatever reason, they're not coming back to, to where their case was. They're coming back uh, with a violation of probation or whatever they were on. And really the question is, uh, what are they going to be sentenced to within the range of whatever the charge was that they pled to? Um, and then they're also dealing with whatever the next charge is supposed to be. Um, whereas folks that come to the restorative justice court never, never plead guilty. Throughout the process, they take accountability for their actions throughout the um, restorative justice process they do, but in a courtroom, they never have to plead guilty to get to that court. And that's really important because when we're uh, working with our participants, we try to uh, connect them to services, connect them to jobs, education, um, housing opportunities. And when you have a felony conviction on your record, it makes it a lot more difficult to get certain jobs, get housing opportunities, get uh, certain grants or stipends for school um or scholarships and so the fact that they are coming in with this opportunity to try to improve themselves or work on themselves um and understand themselves better 
without having to deal with the collateral consequences of an actual felony conviction on their record, um, it makes it a lot more beneficial and more productive for the participants. How long uh, are the participants involved or associated with LCLC or with the restorative justice court? How long is the process? You mentioned connecting them to services and supporting them. So I imagine there's there's some kind of follow-up or, or or something like that. Yeah. I So something about restorative justice that is, makes it so different than the criminal system as well is that it's a very organic, fluid um, process that does not that does not necessarily conform well to our criminal system that is so focused on rigidity and finality and specificity. Um, so it's hard to give a timeline as to how long people are actually in the court. Um, some folks are in there for six months. Some folks are in there for two years. Um, it's really guided by that participant and what the participant's needs are and uh, what they're actually brought to the court for. Um, this process looks relatively similar for everyone. So at the North Lawndale Restorative Justice Court, uh, which was the first one, there's not three in Chicago, um, the client starts by coming in and being introduced to the court. They're then assessed by a social service worker um, from the county who does a risk assessment survey and tries to create different, um, like a profile of, of how much support this participant might need. Um, and then they begin the, the circle process. And the circle process is really what makes the court unique and different. Each participant is put into a um, restorative justice circle with two trained circle keepers who are more or less mediators or facilitators of the restorative justice process. They lead conversations and, and uh, groups aimed at understanding that participant better and allowing that participant to understand themselves better. And then um, through that process, they create a list of goals and obligations that that participant agrees to meet in order to uh, be held accountable for whatever brought them to the court in the first place. Um, so that list can be things uh, that are designed to benefit that young person in order to keep them out of the criminal system moving forward. Um, it can be designed to, uh, uh, to make amends with anyone who was actually harmed by that process. Um, and it can be designed to make amends or build up the community as a whole because uh, part of restorative justice is recognizing that harm is to the community as a whole as well, even if it's between two people. Um, so that process, after that process is completed uh, and those lists of obligations are created, they're put in what's called the repair of harm agreement. And that becomes a contract with the state with the state's attorney in the courtroom um, where the state's attorney says, I agree that I will dismiss this case if you meet these obligations and the participant agrees to meet those obligations in order to um, improve themselves and have their case dismissed in the long run. So um, once that agreement is entered into, the process takes as long as the it takes the participant to meet those obligations. I appreciate uh, your expansion on what restorative justice looks like um, and that it could include somehow working towards ultimately improving the conditions of the community. I've heard maybe one critique of restorative justice 
when compared to something like, or the term transformative justice, is that restorative justice almost, or how it has been defined, puts everyone back where they were, but that sometimes everyone's still in a negative place. There's still Mm -hmm. um, often experiences of poverty or things like that. So whereas transformative justice might be more moving beyond that and how can, and it seems like uh, the work that the restorative justice court and LCLC is doing is, is, is kind of pushing that boundary and moving even beyond to just putting people back, resetting the clock um, or whatever it may be moving even forward. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's great. Uh, and and the, honestly, one of the um, biggest challenges that we face at the court is that recognition that so much of what brings people into the court in the first place are the circumstances, the environment that they're navigating um, that brings them in contact with the criminal system in the first place. And while we're that person is working on themselves, that environment that is not always changing at the same speed in which that person is changing. So um, it's often very difficult for young people to, um, you know, try to, quote unquote, like the people like to make it seem like, you know, you can just be on the straightened path and then you're good to go. But so much happens in people's day to day lives that um, when you're already living in a neighborhood that's over policed, where there are so many, uh, you know, times in which you can find yourself in trouble. you end up having to navigate things so much more cautiously and and still even with that you end up oftentimes getting in trouble but the thing about the restorative justice court that should be highlighted is that our rate of rearrest our recidivism rate uh, for folks who have actually completed the program is roughly like 18 to 20 percent meaning that over 80% of the folks who get through our court, our court successfully don't get rearrested within the next three years, which is staggering when you think about uh, the uh, difference between that and our criminal system. And when you recognize that we are working with the population of young people who are the highest, oftentimes the highest rates of recidivism. These 18 to 26 year olds are the young people who our system, you know, cycles through, who get, you know, brought in back and arrested, rearrested, sent to prison, brought back out of prison, rearrested again, that, that population is often, that's often what we see from that population. And when, and we're showing that when you think about accountability differently, when you recognize that punishment and accountability are two separate things, and that simply punishing someone is not going to solve a, the problem or prevent future harm. Uh, you can recognize that there are better alternatives and ways to address that. That is more productive for the person who caused the harm, uh, more beneficial to the person who was harmed, and certainly more beneficial to the community as a whole. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think too, um, whenever there's any sort of change or uh, push forward in and or pushing the envelope in something in the criminal legal system, people expect perfection. It's like, okay, if we're going to start this new, uh, this new court, we expect 100% of people to not reoffend. But that's just not, you know, 
and and then those the instances where people do reoffend are used as oh see it doesn't work but yeah when compared to you know the the current criminal legal system it's it is working uh i I, my car, this is a side tangent, but I, it, I was thinking of this as you were talking. My car was stolen last semester by the Kia boys, presumably. And there was a uh, Kia boy who not, I don't know if this was the one who stole my car, but who had participated previously in the restorative justice court. And so there was all these articles circulating about how it doesn't work and what blah, blah, blah. But again no none of those were highlighting the recidivism rate from the criminal legal system which is staggering and and mm-hmm. constant and and kind of the good that 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 is coming so i appreciate you you making that distinction um and so and yeah go ahead i, I do i do want to say like one I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you oh it's fine <laughs> but i think that and i think that that's is one like so that raises kind of two questions or two things that that made me think about the first being that I think that another critique that restorative justice gets is um, out, like outside of being soft on crime is like you're coddling these criminals, quote unquote. Uh, and I think that that is the wrong way to look at restorative justice. And it's a misconception of what it actually is. Um, we are with, with through restorative justice when it's done properly, when there actually is harm to another person that that victim is centered in whatever the resolution is. It's recognizing that, yes, we can understand that young people or people in general um, can can make choices or do things um, based on things that they've been through in the past, trauma that they've been through. But at the same time, regardless of what you've been through, you're a person with agency and autonomy to make choices. And when you make a choice, while you can understand the why behind that choice, it doesn't change the fact that someone else was harmed by that choice. And what the process does is recognize that and make that incredibly real and visceral for the person who actually caused harm. And by doing that, by creating that human connection, it's it from data, not only from our court, but from other folks like uh, Common Justice in New York, you can see that um, this is not, is not only a more effective process for the person who caused harm, but it's more effective for the person who received harm again, because they are able to uh, compartmentalize what happened to them. They're able to have their voice heard on what happened to them. And they're able to structure what justice looks like for them in their situation. Because oftentimes people don't want to see someone just sit in a prison cell. They want their money back for their car that got broken. They want, um, you know, to make sure that this doesn't happen again to anyone else. That's a big one that you hear from victims of crime is I just don't want this someone else to have to go through what I went through. And by participating in this process, you can help support that from happening. So what is your role at the restorative justice court? I am the lawyer for all the uh, Wendell Christian Legal Center clients who go through the court. my role is very different from when I have clients in the criminal system. Um, I like to say that, you know, where in the criminal system, you don't want your client to ever talk and you're doing all the talking and you're, you know, being a classic lawyer and talking too much. The 
in the restorative justice court, I very oftentimes don't even talk when my client's up. I let the judge and my client talk pretty freely. Um, but my role is really to uh, support that client through any legal needs they might have through that court, whether they have, you know, outstanding tickets that are uh, preventing them from getting their license back or housing needs or things like that. Um, I help support them on the legal side of that while also making sure in court they're being properly and adequately represented. But outside of that, I really um, am just another point of contact and support for the client. Um, the people who are really doing the transformative work of restorative justice are our circle keepers and our case managers who are helping to connect them to social services that they might need. It sounds like there are so many people that are that are have uh, roles in supporting this this vision and this process. So when the circle is happening, um, or even just throughout the court process, are there any other roles or or individuals that are participating? Yeah. So in the circle process, like I said, you have two circle keepers who are co-facilitating and leading that conversation and trying to get to that end goal of that list of obligations that the person wants to meet. Um, but we tell all of our participants that they can invite whatever, whoever they want to that circle, any support system, family, friends, anyone that they want to walk with them through this process, we allow them to uh, be invited into the circle process. Um, and outside of that, um, we often have folks from the community um, who serve as, you know, stand-in uh, members representing the voice of the community to that participant when they're trying to understand, you know, why what they did has ramifications for the community at large. Um, so it's really, those are the people who are in the actual circle process. Um, but then every one of our participants also gets a case manager um, who, who uh, sometimes is in the circle process with them, but their main role is to um, help support that client with any social needs they might have, whether it be needs for jobs, needs for uh, housing, education, anything like that 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 client wants to work on uh, improving or changing in their life, that case manager is the one who's going to be uh, working with them to do that. You talked a little bit earlier about some of the minimum qualifications um, for participation in the court, the age parameters, et cetera. Um, what are some significant barriers that you see exist uh, for folks accessing the court? Um, I think that... So the to, to back up just real quick, the some of the or all of the you know requirements are intentional um, from when the court was first founded. The uh, court it was created in 2017 um, through a collaboration between community groups and uh, system stakeholders. So the public defender's office, the state's attorney's office, and the office of the chief judge. Um, and at that time, they were trying to address the um, problem of cyclical harm done by uh, young people continuing to get arrested and rearrested. Um, and, the, and so the court age range was created because they knew that that's the highest, that's the uh, age range that is um, one, what we call emerging adults. So they're um, still, their brain's not fully developed yet. They're um, decision-making skills are often not fully developed. Um, so they're, they're malleable in, uh, 
in some ways easier to change and adapt um, at this if you work with them at that stage. And they're also the group that is uh, cycling in and out of the system at the highest rates. Um, so that's where that age range came from. The um, nonviolent crime part of things came also um, what I think is a concession to the fact that you're working within a system um, that thinks of this as a soft on crime, ridiculous uh, way to actually treat people who have committed felony offenses. Um, so to, you can't just start by saying we're going to use this for things like murder or armed carjacking or anything like that. Um, so it was kind of the first step, the first foray, foray into restorative justice. Um, and the grant that the court was first created under required that we uh, only use uh, or only uh, bring in people who have no violence in their background and aren't charged with a violent offense at the time. Um, since then, that grant has run out. Um, the court still operates under a um, presumption that there is no that that we cannot uh, work with folks accused of violent crime. Uh, when I came to LCLC, I came, as you mentioned, through Equal Justice Works. And my project is focused on expanding the uh, capacity and ability of the restorative justice community court to handle those more serious violent offenses where there is an identifiable victim, uh, because that's really what restorative justice is, justice is designed to do. Um, the court has continued to change and evolve. Um, you know, we started with drug offenses where there's really no identifiable victim of someone selling drugs in the corner. It's great for the person who got through the process that they don't have a felony conviction on their record and they're hopefully been connected to services that supported them, but that's not that's not utilizing restorative justice to its full potential. Um, so the hardest challenge that I think the court is facing is what my project hopes to do, which is expand it into those more serious offenses, because you have the um, dual-edged sword of the public not being uh, super literate about restorative justice and being really scared of crime. Um, and then the court also um, doing as much as they possibly can with not enough resources to actually support those more serious types of harms. Because when you deal with more serious harms, you need more resources and more support to actually deal with them. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge that we have now is that is how do you continue to expand the court's capacity and the utilization of restorative justice for what it actually should be used for, which is helping to uh, repair relationships between two people who have harmed each other, one person who harmed another person. Do you find that the court is able to accommodate uh, nonviolent, any nonviolent crime that is coming in now insofar as is there any wait list or, or are folks able to participate um, if, if they meet the criteria and they desire and, you know. There's, so there's no wait list right now. Um, there's three courts that operate uh, in the city uh, currently. There's one in Avondale, one that I work most closely with in North Lawndale, and then there's one uh, in Inglewood on the south side. Um, the yeah, There's no wait list to my knowledge at this time, um, but here in Lawndale has the most participants currently, and we are starting to feel like you know the true 
resource disparity that we have um, when dealing with people, but everyone that works at the court is truly heroic in the amount that they put in, the amount of effort that they put in to all of our participants. I don't think that any participant in our court has ever gotten shortchanged for the services that they've been provided. Um, I think that uh, what this court has been able to do and the results that we've been able to get with the truly a shoestring budget is remarkable. And it uh, should be recognized that more investment into courts like this would lead to significantly more and better results than even what we're seeing now, which is already drastically better than um, what our criminal system is uh, creating. You talked a little bit about um, some of the preconceived notions of the community, but talking about the North Lawndale community that the court is in, what has the reaction been by the community generally from your understanding um, since the implementation of the court? Um, so I don't want to, you know, speak for the community as a whole, but I, but, and maybe I'm in an echo chamber, but it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, there are obviously in every community folks who are stuck in what I would consider the myth that our current system is of incarceration and prosecution is the only way to keep us safe. Um, but overwhelmingly, people get it and they love it. And part of that is because um, the community organizations that helped start the court, um, LCLC included, is work intentional about listening and addressing the concerns of the community. Um, the charge that we have most frequently in our court now is aggravated unlawful use of a weapon, which is the statutory way to say gun possession um, in Illinois. It, gun possession in Chicago represents about a quarter of cases that prosecutors actually bring. It's a huge, huge percentage. It's also not a crime in some states. So it's a kind of a bizarre harm to be dealing with that we're not. Uh, but the community recognizes that young people are not carrying guns because they are you know, one bad look away from shooting someone, they're carrying guns because they're scared in their own community. Survey results will tell you that 96% of young people surveyed who say they do carry guns do so because they feel safe, not because, because they're because they want to feel safe, not because they have any desire to ever use that gun. Um, so when you're dealing with things like that, the community gets that that young person doesn't need to be arrested because when you just arrest that person or put them in prison for one to three years, um, or even give them some sort of probation, they still go back to the same community with the same fears that made them uh, carry that gun in the first place. And now they have a felony conviction on their record that makes it uh, far more difficult to succeed in the legal economy or in, you know, quote unquote, mainstream society. So by doing that, you're forcing people into of higher desire to carry guns, to engage in um, behavior that's harmful to the community than you are if you actually support that person and recognize that that, uh, that that is born out of trauma and fear, not out of someone being a monster or danger to society. So when you, when you work in these communities and live in these communities and talk to people, people recognize the why behind uh, what people are actually doing. And they know that our criminal system is not only 
not solving that problem, but it makes it worse. And um, because that person who goes to prison is not like that harm doesn't end there from our criminal system. Their family loses a support system. Parents end up having to pay money to stay in touch with their kids in prison. You know, uh, children of, of whoever goes to prison become six times more likely as children of incarcerated parents to become incarcerated themselves. And when you arrest people like that and do this time and time again, day after day, year after year for this long, it's the, the one of the ways in which you see how communities like North Lawndale can become destabilized and less safe because of our criminal system. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, we had a speaker from LCLC come to a, a class of mine previously, and I believe she was mentioning that that charge that you were discussing um, is a recent addition to the restorative justice court because mm -hmm. it's technically a violent offense, even just carrying a gun. Uh, it, it gets classified as a violent offense. So this expansion into this um, uh, gun possession charge and and kind of the still seeing the, the positive change in results and response from the community um, is 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 fantastic and i'm so glad that that you you've seen that kind of panning out um in how many folks that you've been able to work with um that that may not have been eligible previously um i know you talked about earlier some of your work through uh the fellowship in expanding into uh some violent offenses um but what are your hopes for the court going forward whether relating to that or 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 other hopes for the court going forward? I think that that is my biggest one. I would love to see these courts continue to pop up and expand to different communities across the city. Um, I think that there is something invaluable and unique about um, allowing people to work with um, folks, quote unquote, in the system who don't um, who are from their community and who know the things that uh, these young people have gone through and can relate to them better. So I would love to see that these courts continue to expand. And I know that um, the chief judge and so many folks want to see that as well. And then of course, I'd love to see these courts be invested in, in a way that would allow us to um, expand into those more serious types of crimes um, because there is, Truly, when you recognize that Chicago's problem with violent crime is so consolidated and so cyclical, it's mind boggling and wildly frustrating and disheartening when people can't recognize that you need to at some point stop this cycle of harm. And by simply utilizing incarceration to do that, you're, you're just contributing to that harm and letting it fester and letting retaliation and things like that flourish, uh, which is what we see in Chicago, sadly, way too often. How can law students get involved with or support this work? Um, so you can absolutely feel free to reach out to me. My email is jsaletta, S-A-L-E-T-T-A, at lclc.net, if you're interested in working with LCLC. Um, but I think in general, there's a lot of great um, organizations that do restorative justice work in the city. 
Um, well, the RJCC itself is a little bit unique. Um, there's so many organizations that are doing great work. And I think that I would encourage everyone to just start and start with the right attitude that it is okay if you don't really know what you're doing, as long as you're not going in trying to tell people how to do this work, that you're going in with the attitude that you are here to learn and to be a resource when you can be, um, because that's the best way to educate yourself on this is to get involved with it because you don't recognize uh, how powerful it is till you hear stories of people like, you know, one of our clients who broke into someone's home and uh, beat someone up and then became wildly close with the person who uh, they actually beat up. Like it's, you don't, you, you don't, that doesn't click with people's brains and how we see um, what should happen after something awful happens until you actually are doing this work. So I would encourage everyone to just start. <laughs> Uh, since we have you, uh, I would love briefly to talk a little bit about your experience as an Equal Justice Works fellow, um, pivot a little bit, but since that's some of your connection to the Restorative Justice Court, um, could you tell us a little bit about what Equal Justice Works is um, and what the fellowship entails? Yeah, Equal Justice Works is a fellowship program that uh, seeks to, I guess, empower young people who are young law students who want to pursue careers in public interest law. Um, it helps them to do so by taking away some of the financial burden that it is to do public interest law. Um, so the, uh, the program that I'm in is called the Design Your Own Fellowship Program, which is where uh, law students or recently recent graduates are able to identify a need within the legal community and then create a project designed to address that need. Um, so like I mentioned, my need was uh, the, or my problem that I was trying to address was cyclical community harm in Chicago. And my project around it is about expanding the restorative justice community courts capacity to um, deal with violent crime. Um, so once you identify your need and your project, um, you pitch it basically to funders that EJW sets up for you. Um, and those sponsors are often larger law firms or businesses. I uh, And they then, once they hear their project, they sponsor it and uh, basically pay your salary or whatever organization you're at um, for two years. And um, it's been a really great experience for me. It's true. Um, on it, like when you're doing, when you're trying to get into public into nonprofits or public interest law, um, oftentimes the barrier is that the organization is like, I can't hire right now, or I can only hire you if you do this job because it was outlined in this grant that we have. Um, where here you get to say, I already got you the grant that you need to hire me. Um, so, and here's the project that I want to do. Um, and I was fortunate enough with LCLC to have interned here in 2019 and then been uh, supported through the application process by uh, the folks here to be able to hopefully bring this project to life or start to bring the project to life. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Jack. Uh, thank you for 
joining us and for sharing. Um, I know certainly I learned more about restorative justice practices, um, and I hope and I'm confident that our listeners will as well. So uh, thank you so much. Great. Thank you. That's all from all of us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station, broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.